choices shape the market, our society, and our quality of life. That's why Euroconsumers helps millions of people in their daily choices, providing simple solutions to complex problems. Euroconsumers is a cluster of organizations, a network of people, a group established to protect consumer rights and well-being that brings consumers and companies together in transparent relationships of trust that respect their independence. Our deep understanding of products and consumption gives consumers a credible expert voice worldwide. We bridge the gap between buyers and manufacturers, between supply and demand. And in this digital age, we create opportunities for all parties to come together in constructive dialogue, partnering to build a future of better products and services. Euroconsumers has the power of a global group that believes humanity can develop, grow and change for the better and that we can promote this by uniting millions of consumers in strength and speaking responsibly for them while simultaneously engaging in relationships of trust with responsible, sustainable companies. Hello, everybody, and welcome to your Start Talking webinar. This is the monthly consumer webinar from Euroconsumers. And it's a series where we're not just interested in hearing different positions. We're interested in convening industry, regulators, technology, and consumer groups to carve out a course that will create some really positive outcomes for innovation and for consumers as well. So to this this month's webinar is called Crypto New Kids on the Block. Uh, apologies for the pun there. And it, the subtitle is Revolution to Regulation. And we're today are going to have a very open and frank discussion about cryptocurrencies, but from a consumer perspective. So it seems like every day we hit a new milestone in cryptocurrency. And I'm really hoping today's webinar is going to be one of those milestones. We've brought together what I think you'll agree is an excellent panel, and we're going to talk about how this potentially risky revolution could actually shape some new opportunities for consumers. Do cryptocurrencies offer a transformative opportunity with their decentralized payments, new investment opportunities, new services, or do they expose us and markets to cybercrime? Is there no accountability? And not to mention these huge carbon footprints that we hear about. And how can consumer organizations like Deco Proteste and Euro consumers work with regulators and industry and steer maximization to steer innovation to maximize some of the advantages and minimize uh, some of those risks that we that we think are out there. And finally, let's think about the future. Cryptocurrencies, some of them are based on a blockchain, which is in itself an underlying technology which has lots of different uses. So, can we think a bit more into the future about what might become mainstream in the uh, mainstream for us uh, down the line. Well, with us to help explore and maybe even answer some of these questions, we have with us today Jan Saisens from the European Commission, who's been involved in writing the MICA or MICA uh, regulation on crypto assets at the Commission. 
Natasha de Turan, who's author of The Payoff and member of the Bank of England and HM Treasury's Central Bank Digital Currency Engagement Forum. We also have Robert Kopich, who's Secretary General of Blockchain for Europe, who are an industry association and representing some of the biggest global industry players in the EU space. So that includes people like Binance and Ripple. We also with us have Carlos Lobo. Carlos was formerly a Minister of Tax Affairs in Portugal and is now a Professor of Law at the Lisbon University Law School and many other things as well. And Marco Pisani, the Chief Product Officer at BitRefill, which is an e-commerce company enabling the purchase of gift cards with various cryptocurrencies, although I'm sure he can explain it in a bit more detail than that. So welcome to the panel, everybody. And um, we're going to kick off with some opening remarks, first of all, from Andre Govaya, who's from our co-host, Deco Proteste. Andre is going to set the scene for some of the issues that we'll be discussing in the webinar. He's the chief economist at Deco Proteste, which is the leading consumer organization in Portugal, looking at spending a lot of time thinking about investments. He's also a qualified independent financial advisor and analyst, and he's long studied the progress of crypto assets in terms of investments and other issues like taxation. And he's been really helpful in bringing this panel together today and also helping me understand some of the issues with cryptocurrencies. So Andre, I'm going to hand over to you now to set the crypto scene. Okay, thank you, Liz. Um, and indeed, I'm just going to make a, a few short remarks because uh, our guests should have center stage, of course. So first, uh, although I'm sure most of us here are well aware, it's best to make a short recap of what cryptocurrencies actually are for the benefit of the internet audience. So they are based on blockchains. And blockchains are uh, sort of distributed databases that run on networks of computers, uh, internet nodes, that each execute the software uh, uh, of the network and keep a copy of the, the blockchain. And this is a first insight because together with uh, encryption, this structure is really resilient to trying to be uh, attacked or, or corrupted. Uh, uh, so far, as far as I know, uh, the main, main layer blockchains have never been uh, compromised. Uh, and this is a, a point which will go back probably again and again in, during this conversation. Uh, so cryptocurrencies are entries on the blockchain, which is the database that states who has what at each moment and logs all transactions between addresses. Um, it's not really difficult to create a cryptocurrency, uh, even because most of it is it's open source. So there are a lot of them. Uh, the website CoinMarketCap just yesterday listed over 18,000 crypto assets, if we include tokens which is what and uh, this is maybe another interesting insight that it's not the code itself of the cryptocurrency that is the most valuable of course it has value but it's also the network the the people that you get to to use and, and run the, the 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 software which brings value to the um, cryptocurrency so um okay but what are you know, consumers normal people using cryptocurrencies for for my experience and based on Studies I've read, even surveys, surveys we have made, uh, most people are, are in fact interested for the for the profits. Uh, they have <laughs> cryptocurrencies have delivered huge gains in the last few years, and that's what attracts a lot of people, even people which only have a rough understanding of exactly what they are talking about. But 
uh, in fact, uh, even from the start, um, ah, yes, this is, uh, um, I just remembered the hodl, the hodling, <laughs> the expression of the community to hold cryptocurrencies and wait for them to, to go up. But uh, even before getting into new application of the technology, from the start, there are already some good use cases for, for the technology, uh, especially in international payments and uh, remittances from immigrants, because uh, they are usually slow and have high costs. I'm sure Natasha will probably tell us more about the, the comparison in payment rails. And also uh, in, in economies with more, more dysfunctional monetary systems, uh, let's begin, say Venezuela with high inflation, uh, as store of value and uh, payment method, they could also be used alongside the usual dollar and uh, other currencies and the kind of values. Um, of course, um, the cryptocurrencies also brought some, some issues with them. Uh, as a consumer, which uh, concerns me most is a lack of accountability. Uh, the problem with the decentralized system that no one controls, it's that no one controls it. So uh, it can, uh, there are some indications that it can, uh, they can be enabling crime. It's, uh, for example, ransomware. It's, it's becoming the, the preferred payment for ransomware attacks, which are becoming more and more prevalent. And uh, more recently, in the last few weeks, we have been discussing if uh, cryptocurrencies can, they, can be used by Russia to evade economic sanctions. Uh, even yesterday, Ms. Mrs. Christine Lagarde, from the European Central Bank, they, she made an, uh, an alert in that sense. So, and um, no matter what you think about, there are things everyone can agree are bad, like financing terrorism. And going forward, I would like to see some safeguards in place so the uh, courses tend not to be used for, for the bad uses. Another point of contention that, as you already mentioned, uh, the environmental impact, uh, energy consumption, and also because of that carbon emissions, even though this is mostly maybe at this point a Bitcoin issue because other cryptos, they don't have such a large scale or they use another consensus mechanism that don't involve mining. Um, it's still an issue. Some estimates put the consumption of Bitcoin network at around the energy expenditure of Portugal and Belgium, Belgium together to our consumers countries uh, in a yearly basis. And this is a very high price to pay to secure a blockchain uh, in, in my view. Uh, also, in the, uh, lately, the European Union had a vote on, on the regulation going forward, and one of the points was uh, the possibility of banning the possibility, sorry, of banning proof of work uh, uh, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, which involve mining and then result on the um, on high energy consumption. Maybe Jan can also tell us a bit more about that later. But uh, also, I don't want to focus too much on on the negatives. I'd like to point out three characteristics uh, of cryptocurrencies or public blockchains, uh, not just cryptocurrencies, that are potential game changers. Uh, the first one is smart contracts, which was when I went to, was introduced to the concept of smart contracts was the moment I started taking crypto seriously. Uh, because having a contract, a program that executes uh, autonomously uh, when predetermined conditions are met, opens a wide range of possibilities. It's, I heard someone say it's like programming money, and that's, that's a, bit, a bit true. And we are, we are already seeing some very interesting ideas, like uh, a project that aims to give sub-Saharan sub farmers access to crop insurance through smart contracts on, on the blockchain. And there are very ambitious visions out there. Uh, some people see smart contracts everywhere, which some authors describe as systemic self-execution. So 
probably the, the most important characteristic. Cryptocurrencies, uh, of course, are a global, low cost, 24-7, always on system. And uh, in developed, developed economies, uh, we have many options for quick and cheap money transfers, but that's not true around the globe. It is estimated around one third of the world's population is unbanked. So a system that can work anywhere without bank accounts, uh, uh, just with internet access, and it can be relatively fast and cheap is really something to think about. And uh, I think, for example, Libra, Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook, they tried to get, to get their own cryptocurrency. Uh, apparently that project is already dead, but it's because of these uh, unavoidable advantages. And finally, the other characteristic, the introduction of property rights in the digital world. And for this, I mean, registering property, uh, which can be digital or other, otherwise, on public blockchains, which, as I mentioned, are very safe places to store information. And uh, also because this concept introduces scarcity in the digital world. Uh, all of a sudden, not every file is, is, is the same. There are things which are different from others. And I think these three characteristics are what, what, are, what is powering uh, the innovations that we are now seeing coming to the fore in the uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain space. Uh, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, uh, which are just files which are authenticated on the, on the blockchain. They really exploded in popularity last year. Although I have to say, uh, I think the, this space is a bit immature and prone to exploitation. Just yesterday I read about someone is selling color NFTs. And I think, sincerely, I think maybe it's the kind of thing uh, in a few years we will, we will look back and think this is a bit silly, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Uh, also, decentralized finance, uh, which allows investing, loaning, making insurances, like the other example, uh, in cryptocurrencies without the intervention of banks, and usually faster and lower costs, and uh, especially because as long as everything is digital, as long as you don't have to interact with different uh, systems, it's very easy to overcome obstacles and uh, bottlenecks. And also, I could mention the metaverse which as far as I understand the vision is having the blockchains be the, the backbone of a new internet, which instead of the services coming from the big tech, tech companies, they come from the blockchain services like identity, storage, etc., digital properties, and uh, the consumers keep the, um, the control of their data, which is very interesting and something I'm sure Robert and Marco can tell us more about. So this is the, the points I would... Uh, um, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> this is the points to me that stand out, and I would like to hear what our guests have to say. Thanks so much, Andre. And I think that's uh, it, it's very difficult to actually summarize the issues in a short space of time. So I do admire the way that you did that, and also <laughs> it made me think that um, we are thinking and approaching this in terms of consumers in the, in Europe. But actually, the point you made about um, the ability for, for cryptocurrencies to help um, in unbanked environments is, is really interesting too. So we should hold that in mind. I also noticed a lot of uh, lot of buzzwords in there. So we had NFTs and DeFi and the metaverse, which I think leads me into the first question that I'm going to put to, to Marco Pisani, um, which is around with all this stuff going on and all the changes we're seeing in this area, are consumers ready for crypto? Your company, your company is enabling consumers to, to try to live on crypto. So can you tell us a bit about that and whether in your experiences people know what they're getting themselves into? 
Yes, absolutely. So, um, uh, Bitrafil is uh, the, the biggest crypto e-commerce in the world. We, we, we sell uh, gift cards, but at the very end, what we enable uh, for consumers is to be able to spend cryptos on uh, what they need for their daily life. Um, so they can buy Amazon crypt, uh, gift cards, they can buy Zalando gift cards, they can buy groceries, they can uh, even pay for uh, bills. Uh, we just uh, enabled for people in El Salvador to pay for the bills and for the taxes, given that in El Salvador, uh, Bitcoin is a legal tender. So um, I think that crypto is more uh, real than most of, uh, of the society and the media things. And uh, the fact that it is possible to pay internationally is a big enablers for, for business and for uh, consumers. Consider that we are a 50 people company and we can, uh, so we are not so big, and, but we can efficiently operate in uh, 170 countries. That is something that could be really hard to do for, uh, for, uh, for a business like us. And at the same time, we enable people from all around the world to, 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 to do very practical things. So both the offer for the consumer and the possibilities for, for companies to do international business are a lot higher with, uh, with crypto, specifically with Bitcoin. So I think that consumers maybe are not ready for uh, the most complex and technical part uh, speci specifically on the investment side, uh, a lot of uh, education is needed. But when we go uh, look, to look at the transactional use case of the cryptocurrency, so to buy practical things, I think that consumers are uh, ready and also the risks are not so different from normal international payments. Uh, so I think that the market it's, it's ready, and I think we are an example of it. Thanks ever so much. I'm going to move to Jan Sasens now. You've been working on the regulation at the Commission, so you've likely considered this in quite a lot of detail. You've been thinking about whether consumers or even the markets as a whole are ready for crypto. So what do you see as the possible risks and harms, and how have you been trying to mitigate them through the regulation? Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much, uh, Liz. Um, uh, I think this is really a, a challenging question because it's an environment which is moving quite quite fast, and really it is, I think, uh, both exciting but also difficult to understand for for consumers, but even also for for for, for regulators. And I would uh, say also some people in the market themselves to see where where things are going. So let me just make a couple of points from our side. So I mean, I think. One point is that, uh, that as any, uh, let's say, part of finance, um, let's say this area of crypto assets needs to be subject to uh, proper regulation supervision. Uh, finance is in itself, uh, let's say, a risky business. You can lose your money. Uh, it's prone to fraud and other matters. So uh, and the money laundering, not to, to, to mention also sanctions or convention, uh, something to add right now. So it is certainly something which needs to be properly regulated. Um, on, the, and on the other hand, I think we see that also uh, for, for, for many people in the space, basically, once something is properly regulated, that also allows, uh, let's say, to scale, let's say, the, the responsible use of this, uh, of this area to scale it up, basically. And I think in that sense, uh, we both think there needs to be, uh, let's say, a proper framework in place, but also once that's the case, 
uh, this sector has additional potential also for consumers and for businesses. Um, so that's a bit the approach of our uh, of our proposals to put in place a framework on markets and crypto assets across the EU, uh, which on the one hand uh, uh, regulates the space and ensures that it's uh, it is safe, and on the other hand, then within those boundaries, let's say also allows uh, it to to further grow. Um, I think the second point I want to make is that. Um, crypto is not crypto i think they're very uh, very diverse uh, as a very diverse set of uh, instruments and uh, it was indeed pointed out uh, already uh, by some of my by my previous speakers uh, in a way um, i think uh, many crypto assets are let's say investments and also speculative investments so as uh, the uh, supervisory authorities have recently pointed out again uh, this is highly risky not suitable normally for consumers as an investment because you may lose all your money. That is not something which distinguishes crypto in itself from, from many other investments where you may also lose your money. Uh, but it is important to know uh, uh, this for many of those assets. Uh, also, from our perspective, we think that general crypto assets are not a suitable, uh, let's say, means of payments, because indeed payment means uh, uh, should uh, give the consumer the impression and the clear feeling that basically all the, the certainty that uh, the, he or she will not lose all its money during the transaction, that the value indeed corresponds to, let's say, an official currency in which he or she also earns its, uh, uh, let's say, a salary. Um, and that is not the case for general, let's say, unbacked crypto assets. I think there are certain areas of crypto assets, stable coins, for example, where such a backing is available depending on the uh, situation. So I think there, the situation is certainly a bit different, but in general terms, I mean, from our perspective, crypto assets are, are it's, it's an investment, it is a speculative investment, uh, and it is not a suitable means of, uh, of payments. And I think what is important going forward, indeed, is that, first of all, this is well understood, and secondly, that uh, indeed then, uh, let's say, uh, once people know that this is, this is also often speculative investment, that at least people are not subject to uh, cyber threats, cyber risks that are not, they're not subject to fraud, uh, and that uh, indeed this is not abused for money laundering purposes. And I think those are the, let's say, the key elements, the key pillars of our, uh, let's say, regulatory framework which we are putting in place here. Thanks very much, Jan. Um, I'm going to pick up on some of those points with Natasha next. Natasha, you've written a fantastic book called The Payoff and How We Pay Changes Everything. Um, I hope I've paraphrased that correctly, but it's a, a sort of bigger look at what payments mean to us as an economy and society. Um, how ready do you think the majority of consumers are for crypto? Because I noticed some recent FCA researchers that the profile of current holders tend to be um, in higher socioeconomic groups or have a real experience and knowledge of investing. But you know, what about the rest of us? <laughs> um, gosh, well, should we should we take this on crypto for payments versus crypto as a speculative investment? I mean, I, I would like to think that those that are investing in crypto at the moment um, do know that they could possibly lose everything because I do see it as an investment. And I think if if we go back and think about what a currency is, a currency in in certainly in a payments context is the common means of exchange within a jurisdiction and or within a, within a nation or a jurisdiction. And, and why within a nation or a jurisdiction? Well, number one, or maybe two key points. One is that most value exchange takes place in country rather than across borders. Obviously, that, that's changed as, as international commerce has flowed. But, but even so, I think something like 95% of payments are made in country. The second thing is that laws stop at the borders. 
um, that's laws, so sanctions laws, consumer protection laws, bankruptcy laws, all sorts of things. And I think the the idea of you know transnational currencies, um, with the exception of, of the euro, which obviously has um, ha has a, a, a very good use case, um, and and state backing and so forth. Um, I don't see the value, and I don't think cryptocurrencies are likely to take off and and be the future. I mean, it, I, I would say it's very difficult to look into the future at the moment. Techno technological innovation is so fast, and regulation is changing um, a pace with it. Um, I would be with Jan on the potential for stable coins. I think the future is probably digital currencies of, of different sorts. But I, do, I don't think the average person wants to take on a new liability with their store of value. And I don't think we want to go to the bread shop with five Bitcoin and find that we need seven. Um, and until that changes, and I don't see that very likely to change, I think we will all want to continue to operate in the currencies in which we pay our taxes. Thanks very much, very clearly put there. Um, I want to bring in Robert now. He's the Secretary General of Blockchain for Europe. What, what do you what do you think and how would you respond to that? You've obviously got representing some of your members who are, are really hoping that, that that could be the future. So um, what would be your response to Natasha? So first of all, thank you for having me. Can you hear me properly? Because uh... Just want to check. Good. Okay, I'll just keep talking unless somebody tells me you cannot hear me. Um, I think a lot of good and valid points were made so far, and I would agree with most of them. I think when you look at uh, crypto assets as they're defined in EU regulation, and uh, you know, I'm making this compliment uh, to Jan and his team all the time that did a great job in creating Mikar. And I think it will be a complete game changer because it not only ensures financial stability and consumer and investor protection, but it really gives the industry the much needed legal certainty that uh, we've been calling for since years now, I would say. And that will change a lot uh, also the perception uh, with consumers. And I think when you look at crypto assets, the reason why they exist is because consumers were not happy with what was going on uh, in the financial system, right? So they're a direct reaction to the crisis of 2008 and nine. They're a direct reaction to the, the distancing of the financial system from consumers, the lack of accessibility, the lack of financial inclusion. And that's just a number of those points that are driven the whole sector um, to where it is right now, right? So this started as an underground movement and we're a trillion dollar uh, market and uh, sector now. And I think for consumers, uh, and we're very su supporting of that, it's very important to clearly have rules in place that make sure that uh, you don't fall into traps, that you don't use illicit players and activities. Um, and um, and that's really the key, I think, for regulators to address. And that's the key also for consumers to understand. So there's a lot of need for education. There's a lot of need to, to bridge the age gap because you can see that the pickup of crypto assets is uh, very high among young players, young people. And there's a lack of understanding even of what it is and what it can do in, in older ones. And that's true in all parts of the society. I think that's a big big and important point. Also, the, the addressing of risks. So, for example, I mean, uh, taking if you're going to London and you're taking the tube, there's all over advertisement 
of crypto assets, which uh, you know promise you a pot of gold based on most of the time nothing. And we are very concerned about that as well, because that's countering the narrative that we as an industry have that we want to be part of the regulated system. We want to have consumer and investor protection in place. And I think uh, therefore regulation is very positive. But overall, I think when you look at crypto assets, you have to ask yourself as a consumer, as an industry, as a, as a business, what do you want to do? Do you want to have a faster, more efficient, cheaper way of doing business, sending money around currencies, whatever you want to call it, making those transactions? You, they can go in, in seconds, whereas if you use the traditional financial system right now, without any additional benefits, takes days uh, and costs more and has a lot of other inefficiencies. And that's just one of the aspects I think, I mean, we mentioned before, but I want to emphasize again, because we're pretty much bringing everybody into the game. People have access uh, to finance the, in a way they had never before. And there's obviously uh, points that have to be addressed. Some of them are already addressed. Some of them will be addressed. And I think some more will come up in, in the NFT space, in the DeFi space, in the DeSci space, which is something even I heard yesterday the first time, to be honest, and so on. So I think there's a lot of positive upside there, but we're not done yet and it's a work in progress. And I think that's always important to keep in mind when you look at it. Thanks very much, Robert. Um, and I think I'm struck again, I've always the, a big part of the answer seems to be education and awareness for consumers. And I feel like with consumers have probably reached saturation point <laughs> with lots of tech education. And also, I don't know about other countries in Europe, but levels of financial literacy um, are certainly pretty low in the UK. And I think there's, I think what strikes me is if you want to start understanding cryptocurrencies, you also need to actually understand how the currencies work generally. And in some um, in some jurisdictions, we, we've lived in very fortunately lived in very stable times and haven't necessarily experienced those fluctuations, which you may need to become more familiar with. Um, did any Natasha? Did you want to come back on that um, that that cryptocurrencies could be useful, faster, cheaper, quicker? Yes. Um, okay. Um, to come back on that, I mean, I think cross-border payments have got a lot cheaper, faster, and quicker recently, um, with some exceptions. Um, I think they will be slowing down at present owing to the geopolitical situation. I would um, imagine it's very, very difficult for anyone to send money to or from Russia um, and and other adjacent jurisdictions. But one of the one of the key reasons that sending money is slow across borders, one, perhaps there wasn't enough competition in that market. Um, and it, it's great that um, technology and fintech is, is moving in to provide that competition. But some of the barriers are legal barriers, and they relate to money laundering, identification, sanctions, and so forth. And it doesn't matter what system you have in place. Um, you will find that those barriers remain. And I would imagine that after the after these current events or in, in light of the current events where there's a lot of concern in, in, in Europe and, and the US at the moment that Russia might be using, say, Bitcoin uh, to liquidate assets and move them around, um, I would imagine there'll be a big clampdown on the crypto exchanges. So then you, know, you give up the problem with a bank 
but you end up with the problem with the crypto exchange. And just just a final point on using crypto for cross-border payments. Well, I live in the UK and most of you on this call live somewhere in the Eurozone, I think. So if I want to send you money, we've already got the Euro pounds exchange that one of us has to pay or one or both of us has to pay. But if I transferred into Bitcoin and then into Euros, then we've got two exchanges to compute into the into the equation. So that's twice as much we're paying in, in, in exchange, unless both of us happen to operate in Bitcoin. And until both of us operate in Bitcoin, it's a more ex expensive way to do things. And I would I would imagine for a time, at least, it's going to be slower because the exchanges are going to be dealing with an awful lot of um, money laundering and sanctions evasion rules that they might not be currently set up to deal with. Thank you. Um, Robert, I'll just come back to you on that. Yeah, let me quickly address that. Um, I mean, that would be valid points if we would be looking at uh, an old school uh, financial system. If you look at the exchanges as they're operating now uh, that are willing to participate in a regulated environment, they're already applying AML rules. So um, all the members uh, that we represent and all the other trade associations represent at European level, that's all regulated entities, they all apply AML rules. So this is already built in, right? There's something that's called the Trevor rule, we'll, which will uh, disrupt this for a while, uh, simply because um, let's say it's, not well constructed and the authors of it didn't understand the actual technology and therefore it will be creating some hustle but once this is in and it's automated we're still talking about the same speed and the same efficiency and the same costs uh, as they are in the financial system now um, i think also on the sanctions lists or the sanctions issue um, you know every financial actor that uh, is part of the regulated system applies the sanctions rules that includes crypto asset service providers. I mean, there have been very clear statements in the US and in Europe that this is not a problem. Everybody understands that uh, they will do what a bank would do. Uh, so they're applying the same rules, same risks, everything is the same. And the fact that um, you could, I mean, if you, so the example that you just gave, um, I think that could be circumvented very easily with a stable coin where it doesn't matter anymore if you have it in, in pounds or whatever. It will be all automated, it will be instant. And most of the time, uh, we will not probably have uh, our national currencies anymore for these kind of transfers, but global ones. And the global stable coins as there exist now, they're all dollar based. That's maybe the bigger issue than that they exist. So for us as Europeans, the question is, why is there no Euro or even pound denominated stable coins? It's simply because nobody wanted to invest in this at European level. There was a huge backlash with uh, DM or as it was called before, Libra, the Facebook project for partly good reasons. But the bigger issue that we have on stable coins is really that it's 99.9% .9 is dollar denominated, which means that the power of the dollar will, or the importance of the dollar will even increase because at some point we'll not be sending around uh, pounds and euros or anything globally, but we'll send around global stable coins because they're simply faster, cheaper and easier. And, they apply everywhere the same uh, because, you know, most of them are already linked to the payments rails that they exist, Visa, MasterCard, Apple Pay, Google Pay. Mm -hmm. They're all using that already. And at some point, uh, it won't matter anymore if you use euros or dollars or whatever. You will just take your credit card or payments instrument and it will just automate everything yourself mm -hmm. and your wallet will execute it. And that's maybe the bigger issue that it's linked then to the dollar and not the euro 
And um, yeah, that's probably, I think, the most important thing to keep in mind how we can change that. Okay, thanks, Robert. That's interesting. It sounds like you're saying, you know, there is actually a lot of um, common rules and regulations that, that the exchanges are adhering to, which I think speaks to the fact that, you know, while some people may imagine these to be completely um, outside of regulation, we're mo they're moving into regulated areas, even though there's some inconsistencies around that. Um, but I mean, on the topic of some government involvement, I wanted to um, move now to Carlos Lobo. We're fortunate enough to have um, someone with experience of, of national tax affairs, who's a former Minister of Tax Affairs in Portugal um, and an established lawyer as well in that area. So as well as this, the financial regulations, we've got taxation considerations for crypto assets. And Portugal is one of the few countries in Europe that doesn't tax personal capital gains in trading crypto, if I'm correct. Was this, do you think this was a deliberate move to attract crypto wealth or, or just a legal loophole? I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. It's, it's, it's a mystery, okay? So, <laughs> no. <laughs> but uh, let's start to the, to the let's, let's start from the beginning. So, uh, Portugal is in fact a jurisdiction that has for the last uh, 15 years, a stable politics to attract uh, high-value professionals and high-value activities. So uh, when I was Secretary of State, I was the, the one that uh, uh, approved the non-habitual tax uh, resident here in Portugal. And uh, that was the idea precisely to, to, to make the Portuguese jurisdiction attractable to this type of, of activities. So in a structural way, we, we are a, a friendly base to this, uh, to this, um, to these uh, realities. Then uh, we have the new, we had the revolution, we had these new, new uh, concepts. And what happened here is our tax administration is very traditional. So it's very Napoleonic, very continental. It, it is linked, it links the tax to the concept. And here, for the lack of regulation, we didn't have the concept. So if you don't have the concepts to tax, they don't tax. And this is the base of the ruling that was published. Since there was no special provision of this uh, gain of this activity due to the rule of law as applicable by the Portuguese constitution, tax authority uh, considers herself non-competent to tax. So it was not a special and deliberated option. It was not, it was not a legislative option by action, but it is in fact um, an appreciation by inaction, okay? Since we have the lack of regulation, we didn't recognize the, the, the concept, so we will not tax that for personal income uh, purpose. However, if you have an entrepreneurial activity, if you do it by, by your own business, if, if there is a continuity, if there is a stability, on the on the on the activity if you have a high dependence if your income if your income drives only from that uh, from that source then we can have a business profit on it okay 
So this is the this 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 is the content of the Portuguese ruling. I know that Portugal uh, assumes like uh, now the tax haven for uh, for the digital nomads. This is another source of of of, of politics. It's fact is true. The government wants to attract. We have a very good climate. We have a very good. Uh, we have a very good. Uh, we have very good food. We have uh, the the. The, the life here is nice. We are a very safe country, and of course, we want we want to capitalize that in a in a in a global in a global perspective. Uh, and in fact, we are. Uh, but the question is the following: In order to be sure that in fact you don't have uh, a very high level of taxation, you need to be very careful and do it the things like precisely as as I told. You need to keep it in a personal income level. If you have a business at this time, you, you need to have a substantial base outside Portugal. And if you are a non-habitual resident, you just receive the dividends. And then in the non-habitual resident scheme, all the profits, all the dividends that come from abroad are tax exempted in Portugal. So in a direct way or in an indirect way, the Portuguese tax system is of is uh, is able to offset all the taxation in this in this area. Even if you don't if you don't offset in the non-habitual resident, if, if you have entrepreneurial activity here, you are limited to a 20% tax uh, uh, tax rate. So it's it's very low in the Portuguese perspective. But in fact, this is something that could change uh, if in fact we start to have uh, a most comprehensive regulatory uh, definition of all the concepts and tax administration feel herself able to start introducing these items on the on the tax law i know that the former government doesn't have that intention the new one will start next week so we need to see in the <laughs> next week what is the the position of the of the new world, but it's the same political party, so I don't assume that will be no change on that. We are not. I'm not. We are not hearing you. Thank you. Um, have you had? Have you considered what the, the effect of the um, of not not having this taxation has had on on the country, or and, and can compare to other ones in Europe? Yeah, yeah, we have. Uh, since when we start this type of um, of politics in two thousand and nine, eight nine, we have uh, only um, and we are we, we were the pioneers. Now Spain has it, Italy has it, Greece mm. has it. We have we still have the most attractive uh, non-habitual resident scheme. What is the position of Portugal? Portugal here tries to adopt a territorial perspective of taxation. We are just interested in tax the income that is earned in our territory. Okay, we don't care about the, the income that comes from abroad, from abroad in the in the in the perspective. And this is linked also to the 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 the, the definition of 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 justice and equality. Okay, we think that we are only able, and it's only fair to tax. The, the resources that are raised in our country. We are not legitimate to have 
this uh, the, the intent to tax outside. Of course, this is also it, this is a policy that is also uh, defined because we are not able at that time to control what happened uh, abroad. Okay, so mm -hmm. it's very pragmatic. It's a very pragmatic approach, and this is a different approach that have have very, lots of success since. We are starting now dealing about immateriality, about uh, non-territorial assets, about digital digital assets. Of course, we are completely outside of territory of our land because we are in the we are in the digital area. So the link to the to the materiality falls, and since you have the fall of the of that link. It's easy to, in fact, to achieve tax situations that enable you to not be taxed. But as I as I, as I told, it's not taxed there. But of course, Portugal want to attract the income, want to attract the people to spend the money here, to buy houses here, and to have a very nice lunch and have very nice meals here. So, in in, in this scheme, we've made the calculation of all the non-habitual residents here. And the, the, the financial result for Portugal was very good, okay? We have several millions of uh, euros of tax income from the last uh, 12 years that were raised not by income taxation, but by sales tax, VAT, and, and mm. real estate transfer tax. So this is yeah. the type of, 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 of strategy that we have and we'll keep in the near future. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that. Um, I mean, thinking, staying on the subject of, of regulation, we've looked at the um, exchanges and money laundering, etc. Um, we've looked a little bit about tax. The other big issue that comes up and which has been included in the the MECA regulation is around um, proposing some environmental sta sustainability standards for cryptocurrency, and particularly those which have a particularly heavy environmental footprint. Um, and I was struck, I mean, last week was World Consumer Rights Day, which celebrates the full set of consumer rights um which which we have and that's much more than just redress and transparency and fairness one of the consumer rights is the right to a healthy environment and with lots of digitalization at the moment it has uses quite a lot of energy resources um and it's becoming a bigger issue in things like ai and certainly in things like cryptocurrencies so i just want to ask um andre and come back to you of your thoughts on that, it, do you think energy consumption and and efficiency is a solvable problem, or do you think it's uh, it's it's one of those ones which is going to be really tricky? No, yes, I, I think it is a solvable problem. Like I said, it's at the moment it's mostly a, a Bitcoin problem. Um, I think the best argument I heard uh, in defense in defense of this energy consumption, it's in fact it's a safety feature of the network because the way Bitcoin works, if you want to take over the network to wreak havoc, you have to control 51% of the network. So you have to use similar amount of energy to, to, to break the security, let's say that. But uh, I think uh, there are other ways of uh, making uh, uh, cryptocurrency safe, other consensus mechanisms. I myself, I'm a fan of Ethereum and one of the co-founders, Vitalik Buterin, and um, they are moving Ethereum from proof of work, which has minor than the energy consumption issue, to proof of stake, which is uh, uh, which they they estimated will solve 99% of the issue. And uh, of course, it's still not a 
this system is not so well so well tested like the the Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin one and the old Ethereum one, but uh, they are pretty smart guys in, in in Ethereum Foundation, and if they believe uh, this can work, I think that's one possibility of solving the issue, uh, because uh, the the other. Uh, again, the way Bitcoin works, you cannot really solve it with better chips because the way uh, uh, the algorithm works, it just makes it harder. So that's why uh, uh, even as miners put more and more equipment online, the energy consumption just goes up. But that is one solution, change the, the proof of work issue. And uh, uh, of course, if they use cleaner energy, it's also better, uh, even though... At this point, we have a lot of competing uses for excess energy. Even uh, the solution could be uh, excess energy from renewables when they're not being used by the network. But uh, there are already a lot of plans to use this energy, for example, storing in batteries, using it to create uh, green uh, hydrogen, liquid hydrogen. Portugal is starting a very big project in Sinesh, uh, in that area. So I think uh, in the moment, the entire world is doing heavy investments to try to be... Uh, greener and more energy efficient. Um, you cannot just say this isn't an issue. I think it's it's an issue, but like I said, it has this kind of solutions. Thanks very much. Um, I'm going to go to some to our panelists who are working within the industry. Have uh, Marco, you first, and then Robert. Um, are your members thinking about this? Are you thinking about this as a business? And and what's your response? Can we have um, decentralized currencies, but then? A very damaged planet or can we have both at the same time uh, thanks for introducing me to this topic because it's something that i, I really care about so um, we, we we have to to look at uh, the environmental problems uh, starting from the original value proposition of bitcoin so uh, bitcoin uh, was created and a lot of people is using it and here the price of bitcoin because it is censorship resistant this is the the biggest quality of bitcoin and this is why bitcoin uh, has been created and this is why a lot of uh, economical actors are really interested in bitcoin and here the price this uh, this is what proof of work defends so, and right now, mm, there are no really uh, uh, any existent example of uh, proof of uh, stake systems that can uh, provide the same level of security. At the opposite, we have seen many, many cases where proof of stake coins failed and cannot prevent uh, change, unwanted changes by the customer base. So, I mean, uh, saying that it is easy to go away from proof of work, uh, I, I will not agree. The, 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 the interest of the public in cryptocurrency it is uh, related to what of proof of work enables. Mark, okay, same... can, you, can I just interrupt you there? Could you very briefly explain proof of work um, for anyone in the audience who might not be familiar with that as the term? Okay, so uh, first of all, the energy consumption of Bitcoin has, uh, has been said uh, is not spent to transact. Bitcoin works perfectly well in the same way that works to, uh, today, uh, even if only two computers are mining it in the world, but it is uh, created to secure the network. So uh, in order to be able to, to publish transaction on the network, you have to spend a lot of energy in order to... Probably the, the, the most easiest example is to win a lottery. 
uh, that enables you to publish transaction in the in uh, in the network. Participating to this lottery requires a lot of energy. Proof of stake, on the opposite, um, enables you to write transaction of the network uh, to validate transaction only if you store if you provide the proof that you have a lot of money invested to do this. So we are switching from something that is market regulated, proof of work, to something that is politically regulated, proof of stake. And that's very different from, from what was the original intention of cryptocurrencies. In fact, proof of stake currencies are most interesting for industrial use cases and not for economical use cases. But at the very end, people is buying Bitcoin because he is interested in the economical use case, in the transactional use case. For sure, uh, national states can help uh, Bitcoin mining industry to have a more cheaper access to the renewable uh, energy. And this can help a lot. But at the same time, uh, I think this is a market that will uh, stabilize itself uh, uh, near the cheapest sources of energy. In example, in El Salvador, they are building huge mine, uh, huge mines uh, right be behind volcanoes that provides a, a huge amount of uh, uh, renewable energy. So uh, I don't think that proof of stake is the solution. I think that proof of work will continue to exist and miners need to have access to more sustainable energies so that we can reduce the environmental impact of Bitcoin. Okay, thanks very much. I'm going to come very quickly to Robert on that. And then afterwards, I'll ask Jan just for a comment from the European Commission point of view. Yeah, very curious to hear what Jan will say because we discussed this already several times and I think we more broadly agree. Um, I think the main point is, is Mika the right place to regulate that? Uh, it's a regulation about uh, financial instruments. Mm. It's not a regulation about uh, sustainability or anything. I agree that there is a place to do that. For example, you could do it through the review of the Renewable Energy Directive where um, the, the regulation uh, in place aims to regulate or, or make um, data centers more green. The problem or uh, though and, and I think that's very important in the discussion is that Bitcoin is a global network, right? So we can make it as green as possible as Europeans uh, as we want. Uh, if the Americans or parts of Asia uh, which are running these mining operations are not on board, then that's, you know, that's like a drop of uh, water on a hot stone, as we would say in Austria. And I think that's why this should be a global initiative that the commission, for example, could lead on. And it's all about the access to renewable finance, right? I mean, every miner that I know, and in Europe, 90% of the mining is renewable. And most of them do hydrogen or um, or other renewable energy. Is really to give access to um, renewable energy. And uh, if that problem is solved, then I mean, that's a that's a pan economical problem, right? That's true for every other industry. I mean, you could argue the same for uh, investment banking or uh, food production and mm. or meat production and so on and so on. So I think it's really about the bigger picture. 
And uh, just pointing the finger at Bitcoin doesn't make sense because even if we would ban it at European level, the only thing that would happen is that pretty much every crypto entrepreneur would leave the continent. We would lose thousands of jobs, tax income, revenue income, uh, the whole innovation of this uh, industrial revolution that's currently going on uh, would just disappear from our continent simply because Bitcoin has this uh, important role to play in the ecosystem. Mm. And I think that's also something that we should think about. So if we're addressing mining at European level, then we should give access to renewable energy on top of what already exists. Then I think we could achieve 100% um, green Bitcoin mining in Europe, but that's not enough obviously because um, we're just, I think 10% of the global market share. So we would have to have this discussion at the global level and I'm mm. pretty sure Jan has some views or comments on this as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I suppose I think when I was first looking at this, my thought was, well, if there's a scarcity of um, clean energy, it, it, is is it is its best use um, on proof of work things, or is its best use for, you know? Like I can give you an example, maybe to conclude there, um, how one of our members who's a miner solved this problem because he's very concerned about the environment, and most of the crypto community actually is. Uh, and that's why most of them operate on very renewable terms, uh, at least in Europe. Mm. And he, for example, runs a, a mine, mining business or a data center, as you would say, uh, in, in Scandinavia. And the heat that he produces, um, he, he sells or, or, or shares with, um, with a wood factory. So basically the wood that is produced there will be dried with the heat that is produced by the mining business. So the carbon footprint of this type of business can be zero if you want to do it the right way, sure. right? So, um, so you can get there's ways way. to solve it. Yeah. So, okay. Um, yeah, and I'm going to come to you now. So, the, uh, environmental standards in a in a finance regulation that 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 was unusual. So, why was it so important um, as part of Mika? Well, I mean, I think actually from from the Commission side, maybe two two points. I mean, I think one, uh, as you know, I think we already have long recognized. As indeed the, the 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 importance and the, also the power which finance can have to promote indeed the sustainability agenda and I think the whole work we're doing on sustainable finance uh, where Europe I think is, is really in a in a leading role I think just witnesses from that so clearly those are not two things uh, finance and sustainability which uh, which would not have to do uh, anything one with each other um, I think uh, that's my second point uh, the, the question is then indeed what are the best uh, let's say solutions and and approaches indeed to make sure that uh, uh, various financial uh, products are as kind of environmentally sustainable as possible. Um, I think from our perspective, we had suggested indeed already initially. Uh, you may know that we have indeed a taxonomy for sustainable finance uh, in place. That this is something we could look at. So I think we signaled already initially that we would be able to to look at those matters. Um, I think at this stage, indeed, the matter is, you know, we have made a proposal, uh, but the regulation is adopted by the European uh, Parliament and the Council of Ministers. At this stage, the matter is still under consideration in the, in the European Parliament. So I think uh, we are, let's say, at this stage, uh, let's say, listening to that and seeing what will get out of the Parliament. I think it is really also an eminently political matter, which uh, where we need to see really also where the, the legislators stand. Um, and then I think we will assess uh, the, the solutions we will get out of that uh, process and, uh, and, and see together indeed uh, with, with them what advice we can give. I think in general terms, what I can say is 
is one it is it is important to look at this and i think we cannot in my view you cannot just look at let's say where does the energy come from you also need as you rightly said you also need to look at how much energy uh, you you consume basically and is that proportionate to the to the benefit which these assets provide and i think on some of the technologies there one can have probably a bit of doubt whether this is really proportionate um, uh, and I think uh, the second point is, uh, however, that indeed also, as others pointed out, Europe is not uh, the only player in this. This is a global uh, market. So I think what one would need to see is indeed uh, the objective needs to be that the global market is uh, in a way transitioning. Uh, and that I think needs to be also the objective. So then the question remains always, well, how, how do you get their best basically? Uh, you don't want to kind of just uh, use the global corporation as an excuse for not doing anything yourself. At the same time, also, it's it's not, uh, let's say, very useful if you just do some things, but everything else uh, continues um, in all other jurisdictions. So I think that's a bit uh, the considerations we'll have, you'll have to look at uh, in, in seeing what are the, are the right tools actually to get there. But I think, I mean, we would very clearly see that there is a need for a transition. I, I take all the, the points which Marco also made on the limits of uh, also of, uh, of, of certain technologies, and I. I, I'm not an expert in that, but I, I mean, I think uh, uh, those things need to be addressed. I mean, if, if uh, the energy consumption remains, if some of those assets remains as it is now, I don't see how, let's say, our societies will on the wrong, wrong run say, well, this is just fine and uh, that, that's how it is. Basically. Mm. Thanks very much. Um, I think it's really, uh, I think what's becoming clear is there's not, there's some top line headlines about issues in crypto, but as soon as you start digging into the different propositions, the different technologies beneath it, it it's a whole new other set of issues which need their own responses. So I'm going to move on from um, this kind of power to another sort of power. And we mentioned this a bit before when we were talking about where where power would go if, if currencies became decentralized. Um, so I wanted to, uh, to to think a bit more about this idea of disintermediation in cryptocurrency and blockchain technologies. So instead of having a central company, you might have services provided by decentralized contracts um, where lots and lots of people are involved in the governance and making decisions. So I'll, I'll come to Andre as a, as a consumer um, organization um, representative. How can you have any kind of consumer protection and how can you guarantee that? if there's not actually a central entity from which to ask for redress or damages? Uh, yes, that's one of the issues, uh, I suppose. Um, I, th I think it's um, like, we, like, like what you were saying before, the, the need for uh, education here is, well, you need it for most things, but here it's uh, multiplied times 10 because uh, like I, uh, I, I think I read an article on the site of blockchain uh, Europe site, uh, Robert's site, uh, that someone said they're trying to stop uh, smart contracts, while trying to stop ideas. I mean, if after the systems are in place, no one can stop them. So, uh, at some point, um, let's I'll make one exception uh, when you are dealing with centralized exchanges where you go to exchange your fiat money for bitcoins okay in that case you have a company an entity that you can uh, help, uh, can be held accountable but for other things when the decentralized systems are put in place um, they're really really it's not almost impossible to suppress so the only option is that for users to be informed and to really know what they're getting into and uh, they uh, because uh, at some point there's 
as far as I can see it, and because that's even one of the, the points of the space is that no one controls it. So um, if you are really involved in the really uh, into the, the matter, you'll probably do fine. But uh, if not, uh, then you are probably in a world of problems because what I see when you go into social media and in the specialized websites, there's a lot of misinformation, uh, irreal, uh, irrealistic promises. So uh, uh, I say consumers so far, they have to be really, really careful uh, at this point because uh, a lot of, of course, there's no, there's little regulation, but probably some things will never be regulated. So uh, be safe, be septic is my advice at the moment. Right, that's great, thank you. Um, yeah, sounds like we need to clear ourselves up. I suppose one of the other options that has received a lot of attention is central bank digital currencies, much more likely to be trusted by um, the general public, I, I suppose. Um, well, depending on your government, um, cutting out the retailer level and allowing you to interface. So digitizing the, the central currency. Um, Natasha, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because you're a member of the Bank of England's CBDC, the Central Bank Digital Currency Forum. Could you explain a bit about what it is and and the differences between that and, and other types of cryptocurrencies, or digital currencies? Um, well, the forum is has been put together by the Bank of England, and there's a mixture of industry, both banking and technology, and consumer organisations represented on the forum. And it's really a discussion around the possibilities, the imperatives or not, um, the opportunities and so forth in the CBDC. Um, no decision has yet been taken uh, by the Bank of England and HM Treasury whether to launch one. But I think... Um, Certainly in the last couple of weeks, we've seen um, concerted action taken by the United States. I think mm -hmm. some of the, the voices from the likes of the ECB have become somewhat more sort of forward leaning in the CBDC space. I think a CBDC framework, and I, um, I tend to think about it as more as establishing a framework for circulation of um, sovereign money in the digital sphere, um, will provide a lot of opportunity for private providers, which may not be banks, to provide forms of digital money, safe forms of digital money. I'm a bit, um, which could provide for all sorts of innovative applications and so forth, um, could possibly reduce costs because banks aren't necessarily um, the most digitally savvy. Um, I do have some some sort of confusion in my head as to whether there's enough money um, in payments for all of this to, to be as remunerative as some of the enthusiasm around stable coins and so forth suggests. Because I think when some of the tech companies read the small print on banking regulation and what the banking regulators think that a stable coin should look and smell like, they might be a little less enthusiastic about moving into that space. The economics may, may not stack up. Um, but I do think it's important um, to have some form of of sovereign currency in a digital form to act as an anchor but also one of the things that that i struggle with when thinking about digital currencies or cryptocurrencies or, or anything else is the idea of regression to 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 states in which we have multiple forms of of private currency and that isn't helpful it's not efficient it presents enormous risk to consumers uh, potential bankruptcy of their provider, restriction of civil liberties, 
you know, all expiry of, of, of money and so forth. Um, but also, I mean, we in Britain like the pound for, for better or worse, but we, you know, one of the great things about it is that everywhere we go, we can spend a pound, much as everywhere in the euro zone, you can spend your euro. Um, it's not going to be helpful if, you know, we have 20 different forms of pounds in the UK and some of them we can spend on Amazon, some of them we can spend at the supermarket, some of them at the post office, some of them for tax. That will not be helpful. And I think one of the things that central banks are thinking about with their CBDCs is to ensure a framework of exchangeability for privately issued um, stable coins. And that, that I think, is, is so important because digital can make, um, can make money better, but the public interest is not necessarily going to be at the forefront of the issuers' minds any more than the public interest has been at the forefront of banks' minds as, as the um, incumbent payment providers. I don't think we should assume that um, it will be at the forefront of, of the tech providers' minds. And just, just while I'm on that, um, I was I was on another session um, earlier today where um, a DeFi enthusiast was talking about one of the great benefits, and you hear this in relation to crypto as well, that uh, cryptocurrency as well, that you know everyone can have access to it, and you're going to democratize finance. Well, you know a lot of consumer protection laws in place precisely to actually put some preventative barriers, some protective barriers in place. And is it necessarily a great idea that anybody anywhere at the moment in the world can go and move all their assets into Bitcoin. I have zero protections and zero knowledge about what that might mean. So I think I think it's a struggle. Um, so I've gone all, all over the place and I realise I've gone over time. So I shall leave it there. No, that's really great. And I think um, plenty of things for other people that other people might want to come back on. Um, Marco, um, you, what, what would you like to add to that? Yeah, yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to follow up on you on on a, on a comment of you when you, when you said if you trust your government before leaving the world. Uh, I, I mean, I think that uh, to to understand what's happening with cryptocurrencies, it's important to understand that it is the first time in history that the, the consumer, the end consumer, I mean, not the government, not the institution, uh, not the the industry, have the possibility to decide who to trust. Uh, um, uh, until 10 years ago, when Bitcoin uh, wasn't existing, uh, the, the, the only thing that can that consumer can do to pay, to, to, to use uh, his work, to, to, to improve his uh, style of life, was to trust someone else to, to, um, to, in order to be able to effectively pay. Right now, it changed the consumer has the possibility to trust, to decide what to trust in payments. And this is a, a very big shift because uh, I think that convenience uh, will define who will win this battle and not regulation. Uh, if we look at how technologies evolve, we see that when a, a more convenient technology comes in the space, completely disrupts the, the, the one that uh, is not so convenient anymore for most of the person. So I think that if cryptocurrencies will become the most convenient way to pay, and with convenience, I mean uh, probably stability of the value, I mean technology has to be more accessible, uh, a lot of things, but if it becomes more convenient, no regulation can prevent it because it is decentralized. So 
I think the regulator's approach is best to understand how to get the best from this technology and not try to prevent what can't be physically prevented. Interesting challenge there. So, um, Robert, you wanted to make a comment also on, on central bank digital currencies. Let's hear from you. I think you're on mute, Robert. Sorry for that. Um, yeah, I wanted to comment actually on DeFi. Most of what I wanted to say um, was covered uh, right now. Okay. The one thing I wanted to add to the DeFi piece is, uh, you know, we're looking at um, a sector or an environment that is like two, let's say, three years old. So it's basically we're looking at the talk toddler and we're trying to figure out right now what the toddler will be in the future. And I think just throwing regulation and rules and fear and, and whatever at it will not help anybody. So I think we should first see how this um, grows out. Because right now it's a, it's a very limited market, right? So it's size-wise, it's not that big. User-wise, user it's not that big. So it's very much uh, up to specialists or, or very um, deeply involved uh, people uh, in, the, in the crypto space that deal with DeFi. That doesn't mean that it will not uh, get bigger and bigger, but I think the approach that we would have to take is a different one that we apply on the centralized financial system, right? Because it's exactly not a centralized financial system. And I think that's why we should also take a step back and think about new ways to regulate. Regulators, supervisors need to hire different types of people. So we won't need any more compliance people, but we will need people that can read code, understand code, and can apply this code uh, in legal terms and then think about solutions that make sense and help consumers to do the right thing. And there will be consumer protection um, rules in place there's discussions about how to ensure liability in the space kyc in the space but it will not look exactly the same way as we apply to banks or centralized exchanges and i think there will be the need for a bit of patience um, with the sector because it tries to regulate it itself right now but this will take time because the technology is so fast evolving not just in DeFi, but you know in ai it's the same and in, uh, in a lot of other places that uses uh, def uh, the blockchain or DLT. And I think we just need to let it grow a bit and then mm -hmm. see where it goes and then take a decision on when to step in and how to step in. So that's on DeFi. On CBDC, I think it's very important to understand what the CBDC should be. And I think as a European or even or also as a British, you would probably have to have a CBDC simply to protect monetary sovereignty because as said, in the future, we will be paying, especially as consumers, with uh, stable coins, unless there's CBDC that add any value to this. And the added value that is perceived by a lot is that it's given out by the central bank. Not everybody agrees with that or cares about that, but for a lot of people, it still matters who issues the money. And I think especially um, the generations that are still alive i think they care about that the future generations will not anymore they will just take the best solution and will choose for the most convenient way so the cbdc needs to add something and i think programmability uh, will be something that's really important privacy will be very important mm -hmm. and without those aspects just replicating digital cash there is no added value to that nobody needs that it will be a big flop and i think the central banks and the governments know that the problem is they would have to take a leap to actually do what is necessary and that is some kind of programmability uh, or some kind of programmability to this aspect and um, 
without that it won't work but for that they would have to probably adopt a new way of doing these things and maybe even come up with a decentralized way of issuing cbdc where every central bank has a node the ecb mm. or the bank of england has a master node yeah and then they will issue that and that might be the solution where central banks will stay relevant cbdc i think uh, will be relevant for consumers and i think uh, there's a solution for this and i think um, there's a lot of smart people involved and if they identify the right solution that adds value also to the internet of things i think that will be the make or break moment for a cbdc if it can be applied and used there otherwise cbdc's will not be relevant um, because yeah. pretty much all the businesses will run on stable coins okay. yeah i think i think that's an interesting point you made there's a lot of smart people out there because i think we must never forget while we're thinking about the impact of these technologies on people and the markets and the societies they live in that there's also a lot of very smart people out there who know about the impacts of of harms on consumers of people in vulnerable groups on very practical things and i think often if we're focusing too much on solving the tech problem we're missing that wealth of experience that's come certainly through citizen and consumer movements in the last 10 years as we've watched digital and in all its different forms play out across markets so i think i would just use my privilege as moderator to say don't forget that that, that there's a whole wealth of other inputs that are not technological but which are needed um to help make these things work properly and i just want to go back to natasha um on, on the on the central bank digital currency point and privacy yeah so robert touched on privacy just that and i, and I think it, it's a very important point and i think one of the other things that a cbdc can do is just as a set a, a privacy um baseline if you want to, if you want to call it that um but, you know, we don't all agree on privacy and we don't all agree on identity. In the UK, we won't have identity cards. In Germany, you have to carry them. In Spain, you have to carry them. Um, privacy, you know, GDPR went down like a ton of bricks in the United States. Do we really think we can have a single global currency, <laughs> single global stable coins, given that we disagree on these, on these particular issues? I, d I don't think it's particularly likely for, for as long as, first of all, we have geopolitical differences and we and we have some quite significant ones at the moment that i don't think are going to play out in my lifetime um but also these very different societal tastes and and money is 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 a public good which serves serves consumers and bank you talked about robert about central banks staying relevant central banks i hope um will either be replaced or stay relevant because they're responsible for monetary and financial stability and I'm not sure that any of our societies are ready to pass that over to decentralized or, or, or private companies. I don't I didn't know that one could think of a structure under which, you know, competing private providers could ensure those two things. I mean, central banks struggle enough with both of them. So I, I don't think there's a question of that relevance staying in place. I do think it, the, the central bank digital currency or some form of alternative is going to be needed to ensure things like financial inclusion, Price constraints, privacy, um, privacy issues, and so forth. And I think, I think consumer groups need to get as involved as possible with the CBDC discussions because mm. that's where they can have the most impact. I think. I mean, obviously, in anything that the European Commission is also doing, and it's doing an awful lot in payments. Um, but those discussions, that that's where consumer groups really need to come in because 
the future should not should not be decided by the technological possibilities. <laughs> it should be decided by what society needs and informed by the technological possibilities. That's a great point. And um, Robert, can you respond very quickly to that? Yeah, I think uh, you wait. I actually wanted to comment on something else, but uh, you made at the end an even more important point. And I think it's all about education, right? So the most important thing is the dialogue between all those groups. And, you know, that's one of the things um, I think that's why webinars like this are so important is to bring them together and have discussions because the biggest risk I see is the siloing of these discussions. And in the mm. CBDC space, you really see that where you have like banks with central banks discussing how a CBDC should look like, whereas there's the probably 10 times more companies for which the CBDC is actually relevant because they need to automate their systems and they're looking at the, the market and they see like, okay, the only thing we can actually do or use is a USDC or USDT or whatever it is, instead of um, addressing that, we should really uh, open up the floor and, and invite everybody into this discussion. And I think this is slowly happening, but unfortunately not in a space that is needed because um, especially when you look into the US market, what's happening there, they're far advanced, far advanced when it comes to stable coins and partly also CBDC's discussion. I think it's really important that we step up and um, yeah, that's, so I would invite everybody that uh, has a business that wants to automate anything to maybe think about to participate in this discussion because it will affect all of us. Thanks, Robert. And um, we're coming towards the end and you've actually helped lead in really beautifully to the final point that I wanted to, to hear from everybody, which is exactly about this point of silos. And I've seen it having worked in tech policy for a long time that you can have enthusiasts, maybe even evangelists in one corner, uh, people who are slightly more cautious and have ex more ex have experience generally over the years of, of impacts on markets of different products, whether they're digital or not, um, who could sometimes be dismissed as negative or Luddite. And then you have governments in the middle, which, like somebody said earlier, may not be having those skills that you necessarily need to create regulation that works for digital aid. So you end up with quite a lot of disparate positions. What we're trying to do with this webinar series is, is as I say, not just to listen to those different positions and then and, and categorize them, but to think about what do we need to know and understand about those positions that will help the whole um, outcome and help that be a positive outcome. So, and I think this was, you mentioned then people coming together, but does anyone have any more thoughts on what kind of productive spaces could we have where we could develop proposals and have a much more multi-stakeholder approach to this is that international bodies like the oecd is it um something completely different and bottom up and does anyone want to go first <laughs> how can we have better conversations with people who don't think like us about cryptocurrencies I'm going to start because you put your hand up with Robert and then I'll. I think, um, and I'm looking there at Jan, um, I think institutions like the European Commission can play a crucial role because they're pretty much at the center point between politics, regulation, supervision. And uh, they have uh, excellent people sitting there that understand all sides and they can, they're in a position where they can be a trusted broker, you know, uh, where you can meet and discuss. And they also uh, can be a platform where they can uh, organize events, uh, 
where they bring those people together. And I think what we're still seeing and uh, a lot at European level is that you have those siloed events. There's very few events where you have like high level politicians, for example, and industry leaders talking to simple citizens, right? I mean, sometimes these are the things that you should listen to because either you have a very low key discussion, you know, with aficionados or evangelists that are sitting in a room or in a bar discussing these things or a very high level one, but the middle ground um, is often not addressed enough, I think. And to create a platform where you could do that, that would be great. And I think uh, that could start in Brussels, obviously in the UK, now you're not part of us anymore, unfortunately. You could do the same in London, and I think you would probably get a lot of positive feedback um, on how how this could look like. And I think you probably could just open up a consultation on how this should look like and how we address it, and then we just execute it. I think there's definitely some willingness from all industry groups. There's definitely willingness from a lot of parties in the European Parliament, for example. Mm. And I'm pretty sure there's also a lot of interest in supervisors to learn more and industry participants. And I think in the end, you know, it's to the benefit of all of us, because in the end, we're the consumers, right? People always forget that we're talking about consumers, but all of us, each of us is a consumer. And therefore, I think everybody also represents a consumer. And um, therefore, we should maybe... Uh, this form yeah, this thank, thanks, Robert. That, that sounds great. Bring everyone together and then execute it. I like your attitude. <laughs> um, Carlos, <laughs> have you got any thoughts on this, having sat in government, which are themselves usually in silos and it's difficult to bring people together? I think that this is a very hard task because we have a change on the social contract, okay? We have the currency, the sovereign currency based on authority and now we have a bunch of guys that say authority uh, sucks and we can do something else completely out of the system. So we are in, in, a, in, we are in the way that we are in opposite in the opposite uh, positions at the start. So the, the question is the following. If you have authority as a way of solving a market failure, and there are guys that solve that market failure, coordinating themselves and offering some sort of solutions in several ways, in cryptocurrencies, stable coins, NFTs, all of these are, uh, are market failures solutions. And we have the government fighting for the last, uh, uh, the last fortress they have, that is the monetary sovereignty. So the, 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 the poles are completely uh, aside. Of course, people are people, we, we always get on the center, okay? But we need to define what is the center here, okay? Because it depends on the power. And the, and the, mm -hmm. power, and the power here is not on authority, it's more on the coordination side in the at this level. So when you start discussing regulation in the space of freedom, this is a little bit um, uh, a concession from the other guys, the, the guys around the the the, the, the contenders, no, the contestants that say, okay, let's let's assume that. But the problem is that regulation is all always contra natural about this space of freedom that is the coordination cryptocurrencies. So the, this, this antagonism and this uh, tension will be always around. Of course, we need to, to understand and people are, are smart and everybody needs to, to, to stay in their role and we need to, 
to sort out the best way to make an evolution. Of yeah. course, there will be a commitment, but at the end, at the end, I think that we, we need to leave space for competition. Yeah. I think the best solution needs to win. The solution that uh, solves more problems, that, I, that is more efficient. We need to have safety. We need, have, we need to have security. We have to. We need to have trust. Okay, but I don't know where the trust here is. Okay, I think we are in an evolution, and we need to check where we are going to to, to arrive. And at the end, I think there will be some sort of uh, regulatory compromise in order to, to check if the blockchain is not uh, uh, it's not corrupted and some sort of giving okay. us some sort of more security to the players. Thank you very much. I love the idea of the people fighting at the last fortress. Um, yeah. I'm going to ask everyone else to just comment on this, but in uh, taking about 30 seconds each, so really nice and concise, please. Jan, um, how do we bring everyone together and, and look at this from all sides? Yeah, I think you play also a very important role there, I think. Uh, I mean, uh, we can play our role, but we are, let's say, a bureaucracy, a technocracy. <laughs> uh, and uh, and in the end, this goes much beyond it, as also many of you said. And, and it needs to also really be brought into uh, into. And I think I mean it's one of the it's one of the the topics which uh, where actually many people down uh, let's say or many people in in, uh, in, in uh, well actually our environment and all of our cities have their own experiences yeah because there are mm. a lot of people who are kind of investing in these areas so uh, or putting their money into that so it's really something we also I think consumer associations need to play their role. I would say. Thank you, Jan. Marco, very quickly. You're on mute, Marco. Sorry, I'm not very qualified to say who has to address the problems, but what can I say is that I think that regulators, when talking to the industry, don't have to use us as the technological stakeholder, uh, but uh, as a stakeholder of the problem we are, we are solving for the consumers. Uh, because uh, in the end, if we regulate something, uh, but we don't solve the problems, so people will try to find a way around the regulation. And so the problem is not solved at all. <laughs> a very good point, Marco. Uh, Natasha, your thoughts on this? How do we bring together some... Well, some um, I, I think to, to a certain extent, the central banks are key here. Um, mm. The regulators are obviously very important, but the central banks themselves are. As they make their decisions on whether or not to issue a CBDC and to design that CBDC and to set the frameworks around it. Those are big frameworks that aren't include things like privacy that aren't really the province mm. of a central bank. Um, and what they're trying to do in making their determination whether and how to issue CBDC is to ensure that there is a medium of exchange in which the general public trusts in the future, because our economies depend on there being an efficient medium of exchange in which we trust, be that a plural one or a singular one. So their discussion has to be with consumers. And I think one of the big challenges they all have is that generally they don't talk directly to consumers. When the Bank of England had its consultation on CBDC, I think the consumer response was about 3% of the mm. total. Um, the, the ECB want, did want better. But I, I would again, I would encourage consumer groups to get involved in the conversation, but also let's, let's see what central banks do to, to broaden the discussion because they can't have it with, with the banking industry or the banking industry plus a few tech providers. It needs to go much, much wider and become less polarised. I think all of us should become less polarised in our views. No, <laughs> that, that's for another webinar, I think. But yeah, I agree. Uh, Andre, um, super, super quickly, how do you think we can... Yeah. 
bring people together. Yeah, it's uh, I think like I like to have initiatives like this. Uh, our first step it's it's what organizations like ours do, and uh, and in our part I think uh, we can also help um, by acting as curators to consumers because so the the, the crypto entrepreneurs they launch the the they will launch their ideas. Regulation cannot keep up immediately. And so uh, organizations like ours can try to help consumers and, gu and guide them when the, there is not so much, uh, when that is not very easy and the information might be very confusing. Uh, so that's a bit of on the ground work that uh, we can do. Thanks very much, Andre. And I'm sure Deco Proteste and Euro consumers will be doing that along with all the other work that they're doing in the space of digitalization and sustainability. Um, thanks everybody so much for coming along. Um, it, it, it's been great to hear all the different views and I hope that everyone uh, signing in and listening to us at home has enjoyed it as well and has learned something. I have learned so much. Um, so I'd like to say a huge thank you to Jan, Robert, Marco, Carlos, Andre and Natasha for their time this afternoon and for helping us all to understand crypto a little bit more. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.